You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Mark Hutchinson and he's well known to many of you because of his prowess in physical exam, demonstration and teaching. And he's a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He works with elite teams there and has done a lot of work with national US teams. Mark, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, absolutely. A pleasure, uh, Kieran. So... You're going to be known as the three million YouTube video man pretty shortly because uh, within about 10 days of us recording this call, your demonstrations of exam of the knee, shoulder and hip and groin will have clocked over three million hits and views on YouTube. So let's focus on improving people's examination of the knee. And many of the people who listen to this podcast won't be experts. So if you're talking about people just emerging in the field of sports medicine, physiotherapy, orthopedics, what do you find some very useful tips in your experience of teaching knee exam? Well, I think probably uh, uh, foundationally, and it really goes to all body parts, is um, you, you need to understand the anatomy. And so we understand uh, what the what structures are there, bones and blood vessels and nerves and uh, and the ligaments and how they how they're functioning. Once you understand that, then uh, probably ever before you ever touch somebody, you need to get a really good history from them. I find that probably ninety to ninety five percent of the time I can start narrowing a differential diagnosis based on that history. And then once I have that, then I do want to go through a sequential exam, a, squ- a sequential hands-on physical exam, so that I don't miss anything. And so uh, certainly part of that exam will be focused on what I think is in the differential diagnosis, but it will always be a sequential exam that walks through inspection, palpation, range of motion, motor testing, ligament testing, and then finally the specific things or maybe specialty examinations that will help target and uh, really clarify the diagnosis. And so for a junior doctor, say, who's examining an acutely injured knee where they've had a good history of mechanical trauma, they're not clear on whether it's an ACL or a meniscus. They've got that tension that you have when you're at a junior stage. What should be going through that doctor's mind? Well, I think uh, as, I, as I first examine the knee, as I would, I would probably always say, think of the worst so you, you know that you're safe. And so uh, I would make sure that the, the pulses are intact distally. And uh, for example, a major traumatic knee, maybe it was a knee dislocation, I need to make sure that uh, first the leg is going to be viable. Uh, and then I want to assess the, the nerve function, motor and sensory distally, before I uh, even touch the knee. Again, so that if I do some manipulation, I need to know if I changed the function of that knee. But then clearly, uh, as we then start really focusing on the knee itself, um, I'm going to look at the knee, and I am going to think about the patient. And so that if there's a part of the exam that hurts the most, I save that to last. And so if I have somebody who I think has a ligament injury, then I will have walked through range of motion, motor testing, as well as meniscus examination, I'll walk through all of those and save the torn ligament, say the MCL, uh, so I'll do my my stressing of the MCL at the very last. Or if it was a meniscus thing that I thought was a number one diagnosis, then I would do my meniscus testing last. But I think uh, once you you make sure that the the patient is safe and that neurologically and and vascularly they're intact, I think then you just uh, walk through your exam and, and do it sequentially so you don't miss anything. 
And it, and it benefits of doing this early after an injury compared to two or three days later in the clinic? Oh, well, there's, there's a couple different advantages. One is if you can get them uh, uh, courtside, game side, on the, on the field, uh, there's, a, there's a tremendous advantage in that short 15 to 20-minute time frame where the athlete's endorphins are in place so they don't hurt as much. And so you may get a pretty good examination uh, in terms of ligament instability, even meniscus work or, or what's in or out of place right then. Shortly thereafter, sometime within an hour, muscle spasm kicks in and can make your examination very difficult. So then now when you have swelling and muscle spasm is in place, um, it's sometimes the exam becomes more subtle for which ligament's out or not. And so uh, sometimes in, in if somebody comes to my office, you know, two to three days after an injury and they're in spasm and they're really painful, um, sometimes the best choice is to say, look, uh, your, your knee's viable, we're going to let things calm down and I'm going to give you a good exam or really work things up more completely next week. Uh, it's okay to be patient as long as you know that their uh, their their leg is viable and the knee is viable. And let's talk about imaging straight away. So similar scenario, what's the role of imaging? And we know that many people working in rural places and in countries where they're not all the tertiary care facilities are available. So what's your approach to imaging an acute knee injury? Well, I think that uh, for, for me, I walk through this same approach in terms of how do I make the diagnosis and and, and, and confirm the diagnosis. And if we go backwards and say, okay, first, I know the history, so I know what I think is going on. I've created an early differential diagnosis. I can narrow that very nicely uh, with a good physical exam. And in fact, if you're good at your physical exam, uh, you can probably make the diagnosis 99% of the time with a good exam. All imaging ends up doing is simply confirming your clinical exam. So I will use it as a confirmation later. Um, clearly, uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, pre-surgically, I'll want imaging. I'll want the x-rays to make sure the bone structure was completely intact or to evaluate how comminuted a fracture might be. Um, but uh, it's not always necessary um, uh, you know, immediately as part of the workup. Work now, if on physical examination, um, they're point tender and palpably tender on the bone, not necessarily over the ligament or just with ligament tens tensioning or, or with McMurray's, then I probably will get my x-rays to confirm uh, a fracture. More advanced imaging like MRIs, clearly I have the good fortune of being in the United States where it's really relatively uh, uh, easily available. And in fact, uh, elite level athletes have almost learned to expect it as a, as a second opinion um, uh, to confirm the diagnosis. Um, I, I don't use it that frequent. I, mean, I don't use it that frequently for that purpose. And in fact, um, uh, I can make a, any ligament of the knee diagnosis, patellar instability, meniscus examination, with a 90 to 95 percent accurately, simply with the history in my hands. Um, clearly, before I do surgery of some multiple ligament injured knee, uh, I probably will have an MRI scan to make sure I'm not missing other pathologies and that I'm prepared to address it at the time of surgery. And Mark, if we think about hemarthrosis versus effusion, how do you differentiate those and is that important? Well, I think uh, uh, clearly water on the knee is what your patients will commonly uh, present and say, hey, I've got, I've got something sloshing around or my big and swollen knee. Um, and I think the two are very important. 
I think we have to think about what can cause a fluid to be on the knee. Uh, one issue is clearly uh, that we have to be always a little sensitive to. In our sports world, we're looking at trauma all the time. Is it an intraarticular fracture? Is it a ligament injury? Is it a meniscus? But you know what? If it's just your clinical office and they walked in, you have to make sure that it's not some more systemic arthritis. Uh, uh, it could be an infection. Uh, so somewhere in my mind, I always have to think if they have this fluid on the knee, I need to make sure they're not infected uh, in their knee. So I'll look for warmth and I'll look to see if they're, how tender they are with motion of the knee. But with that said, and so I have that caution on my mind, um, for me, for most of my athletes who present after an injury within you know the first uh, few days to my office or maybe a week, and they come with a, acute knee hemarthrosis or a, a, a acute knee swelling that they didn't have before the injury that they describe, uh, that more likely than not is, a, is, a, is blood on the knee, acute hemarthrosis, and I'm going to consider four key diagnoses. One, a patellar dislocation. Two, an ACL injury. Three, an intraarticular fracture. And four, a peripheral meniscus tear. With the peripheral meniscus tear being probably less tense of a hemarthrosis, a intraarticular fracture, if you actually tap it, you may see fatty globules uh, from the marrow because it was, it was continuous with the marrow. And for patellar instability, uh, generally I will be very careful with examining the medial retinaculum and I'll assess for patellar apprehension to help me confirm that clinically. Do you see a role for drainage of knee swellings? Um, it's a very interesting challenge. I think that uh, uh, I think professionally, there's two different schools of thought. Um, uh, one is simply don't do it. Your body uh, for an acute knee, acute knee hemarthrosis will absorb it in time, um, and uh, and by putting a needle into a joint, you're introducing the potential infection in an area with with blood in there. It's pretty uh, uh, a, a nice arena for bugs to grow and potentially get infected. So some people are cautious. The, clearly, the advantage of doing it is we know if you just put, you know, uh, four cc's or two tablespoons of fluid inside the knee, your quad already has a, a shutdown. So it already has a, a reverse effect, so you're not going to fire your quad as, as, freak, as strong, and it's going to affect your rehabilitation. So decreasing a, a, a hemarthrosis will probably speed your rehabilitation. For me, um, uh, I, I am cautious. I don't routinely aspirate all swellings in the knee. If I think there's an infection, I need to make the diagnosis, I will. And then the other group that I always will is the tense hemarthrosis. And I'm talking about it's when you press on the knee, it's tense like a drum, the person is sweating. They're not happy. They're getting a, 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 a sympathetic response because of this tight hemarthrosis. And I will tell you, when you take the fluid off of those people, you can make them the happiest friend you have because you just have this relief that occurs as the fluid comes off. They do need to know that uh, most of the time the fluid will return in those cases, but usually not quite as tense, maybe 50%. And at that, po at that point, they're much more comfortable. Two more clinical scenarios before we leave the acute knee. Many of our listeners will have a patient who they can diagnose a meniscal injury 
and you might highlight the signs for that. But then the patient says, will this get better without arthroscopy or will it need an arthroscope? So what's a good strategy in that scenario? Well, clearly, um, I think it depends a little bit about uh, what you find clinically. And so uh, naturally, um, for the conservative meniscus pathology, the most common finding is going to be just joint line tenderness, which is not very specific. I mean, that could be a degenerative meniscus. It could be arthritis. It could be a flat meniscus. It could be a bucket handle meniscus. But at least get you a flavor that, that, that uh, it's a common finding for meniscus pathology. For me, the, my best examination is a McMurray's test. So I will uh, rotate the tibia, twist and compress on the meniscus while I'm palpating the joint line. And one very, very key part, I think so many of my students and residents miss the point, is they'll do that twisting maneuver. And when the patient says, ouch, they go, aha, you have a meniscus tear. And actually, that means that they might have a meniscus tear. They could have arthritis. They could have a bone bruise, too. For me, the, the absolute diagnosis is when you do the McMurray's and you feel a pop and pain simultaneously. So you evaluate that pop, and if it's a big clunk mechanical pop, then you have an unstable meniscus pathology that probably needs to be addressed with arthroscopy. Why? Because if it continues to be unstable, popping in and out, it's going to damage their cartilage and have, have them a uh, much higher risk of getting uh, arthritis in the future. So a gross mechanical McMurray's pop, for me, is an absolute indication to proceed with, with surgery. If I just have a little bit of pain, it may be a small degenerative fraying, um, or in some cases where uh, imaging shows a peripheral tear, but everything's stable, they may heal by themselves. And, and in those cases, I may say, look, you have an option. I can look inside your knee, or we could wait. We can wait four weeks or six weeks, as long as there's nothing uh, uh, unstable within the knee, you're not hurting them. And in many cases, uh, things will settle down, their knee will be fine, and you can avoid surgery. And so we just always keep in your back pocket that as long as it's not mechanical and unstable, it's okay to wait, reevaluate, and then if they continue to have problems, address it then. And to keep the practical angle, let's focus on ACL rupture. So the patient has um, come in with a scenario consistent with an ACL rupture. The clinician has made the diagnosis. Let's talk about surgery timing and surgery yes or no, because there was a very important paper in the New England Journal by Frobel and colleagues, as you know, who's been on one of our podcasts, suggesting that not all ACLs need to be reconstructed. So why don't you take us through your thoughts on that issue, which I know you deal with every day and have thought about a lot. Oh, yeah. I think that uh, it's very interesting. I, I find my patients will – I have I had a patient today who came in and uh, an older woman uh, happened to slip and fall, twisted and tore her ACL. And, uh, uh, and so she came in and says, something's torn. Uh, I'm here to get my ACL fixed. It actually was somewhat difficult for me to try to explain to her that, you know what, all ACLs don't need to be fixed. You're not a high-level twisting and cutting athlete. You haven't proven that you've had recurrent instability. Um, and so once, once you explain some of these things and the broad things to patients, they can understand it. So for me, um, my primary indications for ACL reconstruction, that, or at least I'm going to lead my patients to consider it, is uh, uh, a younger athlete, or really any athlete, uh, who's a high-demand twisting and cutting sport, so that uh, in those 
patients, if they play twisting and cutting sports more than two to three times a week, more likely than not, they're going to have recurrent instability. And my term for that is wobbling, and if they and wobbling is bad. If they have recurrent instability and their knee wobbles, they're going to damage more things inside their knee. They're going to damage their meniscus. They're going to give themselves arthritis. So wobbling is bad. Now, for uh, somebody who says, hey, I'm a, I'm a housewife or I'm a straight-ahead jogger and all I do is uh, swim or straight-ahead things, they may be able to live the rest of their life without their ACL as long as they didn't have any other associated injuries and not have any problems at all. Um, and uh, the, it's, the, it's the twisty and cutting athlete that's really mo- mo- at most risk. The other group that I will pay attention to very carefully in terms of the consideration of ACLs is the uh, uh, military, uh, police, firemen, somewhere where if you're put in harm's way, somebody else's life is dependent on you to be able to stay upright and not have a pivoting episode when you fall down. Uh, and in those people, I think ACLs uh, have a very strong indication. And uh, another group is regular people, uh, average workers who work at height. So somebody who's doing building construction and somebody who's uh, uh, painting or, or washing windows. Uh, when you work at height, you don't, you don't want that pivoting episode that accidentally happened at the wrong time. It's going to cause you to fall and, and, and uh, you know, kill yourself or injure yourself. And so in those, in those patients, those are all my strong indications for ACLs. Uh, everybody else, um, I will really talk, them about, talk to them about it, really try to make them understand uh, what the real risks are. I think so many people think, well, I'm going to have my ACL fix me. Uh, and they don't respect the fact that it's going to take them six to eight months of hard rehabilitation uh, to be able to get back to, uh, to function. They don't necessarily respect the risks of surgery, of stiffness, of infection, uh, of anesthetic issues, uh, that once they understand those things, maybe if you're really borderline, then you're going to say, well, I'm going to opt out of this acute ACL reconstruction or, or the one that happens just because I tore my ACL. And in that case, if you're not one of those high-risk people, wait it out and see. Prove that you're unstable. Uh, because many of us, uh, uh, for me, I mean, I'll, I play some tennis and I'll do some uh, hiking and jogging and cycling. It's really more of a straight-ahead life. I might very easily never pivot my knee again. And if that's the case, I'm not hurting myself by waiting. So you, it's okay to have somebody prove that they're unstable or they wobble. Hutch, um, tempted to leave it there, but I want to sneak in one last question about the knee, and that's management of acute patella dislocation in the athletic person. First-time dislocation. Is that a surgical condition, or can that be managed conservatively? I love your questions. Um, the, because this is, one, this is a very big pet peeve of mine. Um, I think you have to look at a first-time patellar dislocation and first double-check that they didn't break off an osteochondral loose fragment. If they broke off a piece and they have locking of their knee, then they require surgery because that loose piece is going to damage their knee. Everybody else, and that only happens about 15% of the time, or some people say 7%, but it's not that often, but you do have to look for it. Everybody else, I believe, can be treated conservatively. Now, the basis of my logic is that um, first-time dislocators have about a 50% chance of having recurrent dislocations after the first dislocation. 
which means even if you don't treat them at all, half the time you never needed to do surgery right away anyway. They would, they would have gotten away with it. The other, the other uh, thing is, is that if you treat them appropriately, immediately, which means you put them and you reduce their patella, either with taping or with uh, uh, a knee sleeve with a lateral J-pad, um, I love these dynamic braces that have some Velcro, that there's a pad on the uh, 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 lateral aspect of the knee, and you Velcro and you tension that, the kneecap down um, and reduce it. Now your chance of recurrent dislocations decreases to maybe 20 to 30%. That means I, d- I did surgery. If I did surgery acutely, I did surgery on 70 to 80% of people that didn't need it. So I don't do uh, very many acute patellar dislocation surgeries. I do it if there's an osteochondral fragment. Um, and in general, I make them prove that they're unstable uh, after an appropriate treatment. And I think that that's a very safe way to go. Now, some of my colleagues will do it earlier. Uh, they've, they, they'll argue that um, uh, the tissues are going to heal in a tightened position. Uh, recurrent instability causes more damage. I, I don't actually disagree, but these are all things that are easy to address at the time of the, the, uh, the actual surgery, so they prove unstable after two or more episodes of instability. As long as they don't break off another piece of cartilage, you get them after maybe one episode, they probably aren't going to damage their knee significantly, and then you stabilize them then. And how do you look for that initial osteochondral injury first up? Um, the, by, by history, you're going to hear that they have locking. And so if I'm treating them conservatively, so I start my conservative pattern of treatment. Um, if they have a, a tense knee hemarthrosis, I may aspirate the knee. In general, I don't. I put them in that knee sleeve that holds their kneecap reduced. Uh, and if then, after I get them to start to work on motion, they say something's catching, now that's my person that's locking. Um, clearly, if you get imaging studies, uh, you want to get a complete imaging study of the knee. And I'm saying AP, lateral, patellar sunrise, and a notch view. Why? Because sometimes on a true AP or a lateral, which is what we would commonly get, you're going to miss the loose fragment that's hiding in the notch or hiding in one of the gutters because you have overlapping shadows. If you add the patellar sunrise view or a merchant's view uh, as well as a notch view, then you're going to pick up those occasional loose pieces. But it's still not 100% sensitive for chondral defects, right? Oh, no, no, no. You have to have a piece of bone. And so uh, the only way the x-rays are going to show it uh, is actually if it's an osteochondral lesion, not a chondral lesion, uh, because you have to be able to see the fleck of bone. The cartilage won't show up on x-ray. So now if I have somebody who is locking and my x-rays are negative, um, they, well, clearly they have a mechanical pathology. They're probably going to need an arthroscopy anyway. If you have MRI available, uh, that's a great way to look for the chondral fragment. If you don't have MRI available, it's a it's reasonable indication because of the mechanical locking that you have just to proceed with arthroscopy. Thanks a lot, Hutch. We'll leave it there on the knee. And for listeners, you've been listening to Mark Hutchinson, who demonstrates how to examine major body parts, including the knee, on YouTube. And you can find that on the BJSM YouTube channel through YouTube directly or on the homepage for BJSM under the education tab, you can click on Mark Hutchinson videos and the video link there. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.